Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast, Ye Old Crime, with an E in old, in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. The Oracle Network. And welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. How are you? Doing all right. How are you? Good. Yeah. You went to a birthday party? I did go to a birthday party. Cool kid's birthday party? It was a kid's birthday party. I got to hold my youngest nephew, and he fell asleep on me, so that was fun. Aww. You get to touch babies again. I do. So this week, we are going to be discussing a case that was picked by Kara from the Drunk Theory podcast. Okay. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Kara. And we are going to be discussing John Johnson. I love names like that. I know. And I purposefully left out his nickname because I don't want to spoil anything. Uh Uh-oh. Is it murdery? Yes. There's killer in the nickname. So, yes, it is murdery. Mm. (laughs) You'll find out why. So information this week was pulled from the following sources. A 2020 All That's Interesting article by John Karofsky. A 2020 Free Range American article by David McCarr. 2013 Cowboy to Cowboy blog post. (laughs) 2013 Mental Floss article by Miss Selenia. A 2006 Damn Interesting article by Alan Bellows. 2005 Los Angeles Times article by Cecilia Rasmussen, findagrave.com, Legends of America, and Wikipedia. I love that findagrave.com had enough content for you to acknowledge their contribution. It's not just, here's the grave. It's not just, here's where they're buried. Here's a pile of dirt where they live. And it's like a muddled Google Earth photo. (laughs) Where you like, can't quite... A blur, and there's like a circle around it, right? Yeah. Pixelated, where you don't know if it was a picture taken in real life or on the Oregon Trail. Right. Yeah. It's just a picture of grass. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, okay. Insert dead body here. I'll, I'll never forget the plot where the majority of my mother's family are buried. There's a person with a farm really close by. And occasionally the cattle will get out and just like eat the grass in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's so funny. Like just the cattle's grazing <laughs> on the grave. That's Iowa, folks. I'll never forget that. My mom was like, oh, no. <laughs> Luckily, she knew whose cattle it was. So she, she went to their house and she's like, oh. Anyway, on that note, links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. <laughs> Shall I tell you a story? (laughs) Something that's probably definitely not related to haunted cows. Mm -hmm. 
but I felt did I get a whiff of a cowboy reference? Is this in the yes? West? This is a wild beast story. Ah, going beast. So as with so many of the colorful men we've covered on this show, today's subject went by a number of names, including John Johnson, Jack Johnson, and John Johnston, to name a few. Just went Scottish for a second. Yep. So John was born John Garrison on July 1st, 1827, in Little New Jersey, to parents Isaac and Eliza Garrison. But he just really wanted an alliteration. He did. He was like, I need I need something else. They couldn't name me Gary Garrison, so I had to change it up. <laughs> Gary Garrison. <laughs> it's not generic enough for me. Gary Garrison. <laughs> <laughs> the fastest gun in the West. <laughs> Jersey. <laughs> I can see why he changed it. Yeah. yeah. Little is known about his childhood, but we do know that he joined the United States Navy during the Mexican-American War in 1846 under the moniker of John Johnson, which would make him around 22 years old when he enlisted. Allegedly. I feel like so many, so many men enlisted younger than they were. Well, if we're going based off his birth date, he would have been 22 years old. But who knows what what year, what age he actually gave them since he was already changing his name. You know what I mean? Right. He deserted after he struck an officer during an unknown disagreement. Oh, no. Then changed his name to John Johnston, adding the T so they couldn't find him and traveled to the Western frontier. I'm sorry, but what does that say of ye old investigation teams? That they could be entirely like the wrench and the whole thing was the letter T. <laughs> oh, no, there, there was an unaccounted for consonant in his last name. <laughs> We're screwed. Can't find this guy. The era before Sesame Street was rough. <laughs> <laughs> What's the missing letter in his last name? John John's John Johnson. Uh, not that. Couldn't possibly be the same guy. <laughs> Looks like him. Sounds like him. Oh, he's got a T in the name. Not him. Not that guy. You can check out. As he left New Jersey, John met up with an experienced mountain man named Old John Hatcher, who became his mentor of sorts as they made their way west. Oh, no. A 90s movie now. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Taylor Thomas as <laughs> John Johnson. <laughs> and Robin Williams is the old man. <laughs> This old man Hatcher. Only because he was hairy enough to play the role. <laughs> he just reprises his role from Jumanji. What year yeah. is it? <laughs> oh, perfect. He's fashion clothes from his own hair. It's fine. Yeah. John was known as a giant mountain man with reddish hair and a burly beard. And it said he stood just over six feet tall and weighed around 260 pounds, which would make him quite the formidable person to run into if you happened upon him in the wild. Yep. That was tall back then. Yes. Six feet. Because I remember it being a huge deal that George Washington was six feet tall. Yeah. I feel like most people... Probably like 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, I would say around five feet. I would say most people didn't get much taller than like 5'6". Wow. I suppose. I don't know. I mean, if you think of old houses, how, yeah. low, how low are the doorways? Yeah. I don't notice because I'm 5'5". Five, five. <laughs> five, five, 
<laughs> when you're married to someone who's six foot seven, you tend to notice <laughs> when he's like, I have to duck at an unnatural angle to be able to fit into this house. You just, you just hear, ow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so six feet, 200 and some pounds. That'd be a pretty burly dude and shocking red hair. Yep. John joined Hatcher at his cabin on the Little Snake River in northern Colorado, where he learned how to hunt, trap, and survive in the wild in order to make a living. John was a fast learner and became proficient with his 30 caliber Hawken rifle and Bowie knife. Years later, Hatcher chose to give up the life of a mountain man and left his cabin to John. Shortly after this, John set out for the Bitterroot Valley of Montana. So he was probably a fur trader then. Yep. Okay. Yep. So he was like a trapper, hunter. And yeah, so he would just go and basically be out all winter trapping and hunting. And then in the spring, he would sell the furs from the animals that he'd trapped. Do we know and how stuff. big he was? Um, Hatcher? Yeah. I don't know. Well, not Hatcher Johnson. That was Johnson, the one that I described. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I John- thought you were describing Hatcher. Sorry. No. John Johnson was a giant mountain man. Okay. So he was the one with red hair, really beard, okay. super tall, 260 pounds. 260 pounds of beaver meat. <laughs> that's, all he, that's all he ate. Beaver jerky. Certified beaver beefcake. <laughs> beefcake. During his first solo foray into the wild country of Montana, he stumbled across a covered wagon that had been attacked by a band of First Nation warriors. The sole survivor was a woman who had witnessed the slaughter of her entire family. As a result, she'd gone mad with grief, and it's believed that the warriors had left her alone to die as they felt she'd been touched by the great spirit and driven mad as a result. Yeah, I can see why they wouldn't want to rescue her if she's probably too afraid to even be approached by them. Yeah, well, she was probably just like hysterical, because I guess it described her as a mother, so I'm assuming she saw her children slaughtered as well. Yeah, but it's... I don't know. I think it's almost crueler to keep her alive. Yeah. That's really awful. Either way, John took in the woman and provided her with food. And after this encounter, it's unclear what became of her. Hmm. John soon settled in Alder Gulch in the Montana Territory to try his hand at mining for gold in present-day Nevada. But he eventually made a living as a trapper, hunter, Hmm. and a woodhawk, which is someone who provides firewood to steamboats. Oh, yeah, I bet he was a big enough guy that he could actually make enough wood mm-hmm. to sell because that's not easy. Yeah. So he was a woodhawk along the Missouri River for a time. Woodhawk. Interesting. At some point, he married a woman from the Flathead American Indian tribe. Today, the Flathead Indians include members of the Bitterroot, Salish, Kootenai, and Pondere tribes. Okay, so it was one tribe initially, and then it separated into three different ones over time? It's, Or was it more of like a co-op, almost? I think what is currently recognized today as part of the Flathead Nation are these three separate tribes that then okay. formed the nation. I, I believe, based off what I found in my research, that she was part of the Bitterroot Salish tribe Okay, originally. And so that might have been one of the original, quote unquote, true flathead tribes. But it was kind of hard for me to find in my research. So I just know that today, those three tribes together are recognized as the flathead nation. On some sites, they listed her name as the swan. But during the bulk of my research, no name was given for her at all. 
And in some, it said that he acquired her in a trade with her father. Oh. Yeah. So it wasn't like, oh, they saw each other and fell in love at, while he was cleaning his bloody hands of fevers. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure what he traded for her to acquire her. If it, yeah. you know, it, that wasn't clear either. So either way, Strange. John took her with him back to the cabin on the Little Snake River in Colorado. Oh, that's far. Yeah. If he was in Montana. Yep. During their long journey, John had his new bride teach him the Salish language of her people. Nice. Yeah. And in exchange, he taught her how to use a rifle so she could hunt for herself if needed during the winter while he was away trapping. I want to talk to you and then you can shoot things. <laughs> I'm going to teach you how to use this gun. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I do that. Yeah. They arrived back in Colorado in early autumn where John and his wife spent the rest of the season putting together enough supplies of dry goods to last her through the winter while she awaited his return in the spring. When he returned to the cabin in the spring of 1847, it was to find the grisly remains of his wife in the open doorway of their cabin. She'd been the victim of a crow raiding party, and worse still was the fact that amongst her bones were the remains of their seven-month-old unborn child. He probably didn't even know she was pregnant before he left. He might or maybe. have known. He probably knew. He would have... Oh, yeah. If it was seven months, there's <laughs> a little math. Math. Yeah. Oh. After the murder of his pregnant wife, John vowed to track down and kill each and every member of the Crow tribe to avenge them. What's he got to lose? Yep. Given his skill set, it wasn't difficult for John to track and kill members of the Crow Nation. It's said that the hills soon became littered with the scalps of his enemies. Yeah, yeah I'm sure he had a way around with a knife. Yep. At that point. He also gained the nickname Liver Eating Johnson, for it is said that oh, each time... No. He killed a crow warrior. He'd cut out the man's liver and eat it after scalping him. Why the liver? I'm going to go into that. Okay. Because, like, you may be wondering why he fixated on the liver in particular. <laughs> yep. To the crow peoples, the liver holds special significance. And if it is taken from you, you cannot enter the afterlife. Oh, snap. John knew this very well from his prior dealings with members of the Crow Nation and used this knowledge against them as an extra fuck you. Whoa. So not only was he mowing them down with zero remorse, but he was ensuring that their souls would be unable to ascend to the next plane. That's quite the revenge. Yeah. Like the, the John Wick of the Wild Yeah, he's, he's, the, he's the original John Wick. Instead of a dog, it was a baby. Yeah. And his wife. And wow. Since John wasn't much of a record keeper, it's unclear <laughs> just how many members of the Crow tribe he killed. Probably didn't care. Many believe that he killed, scalped, and ingested the livers of over 300 Crow men. That seems excessive. It wasn't long into his killing spree that just the mention of his name would strike fear into the hearts of the Crow people in particular, but also in the hearts of other First Nation peoples in the Northern Rockies and the plains of Wyoming and Montana. Well, I bet, because they didn't know if he was able to discern if they're a crow native or not. Yeah. Early on, the crow sent out a party of 20 of their best warriors to track down and kill John, but none of them ever returned. Oof. Yeah, he is John Wick. Damn. During one winter, John was traveling over 500 miles to visit the family of his slain wife. 
when he was captured by a group of Blackfoot warriors. Intending to sell him to the Crow so they could enact their revenge upon him, the warriors stripped him to his waist, tied him up with leather straps, and left him in a teepee with a guard until a rendezvous could be arranged with the Crow. John was still able to free himself and flee from the teepee where he was being held. He knocked out his guard, scalped him, and took one of the guard's legs as a souvenir before fleeing into the surrounding woods, where it's believed he ate the man's leg to sustain himself as he fled. Okay. Like, I know there's the whole trope of, like, gingers don't have souls, but he definitely doesn't have one anymore. (laughs) During his flight from the Blackfoot camp, he ran into an old trapping buddy of his named Delrue, who helped him successfully escape and make it safely back home. So I'm assuming he helped him go back up to Colorado. Got him some clothes and food. and Mm -hmm. After killing countless crow people, John finally saw reason and made peace with the members of their tribe, effectively ending his 25-year-long vendetta against them. Okay, he would not have been a young man. No. During that time. No. He was in his like 30, 40s. And then he did that for 25 years. So he was in his 60s. He was almost in his 60s by that point. Yeah. Whoa. No, he probably would have been in his 40s. Eh, no. I don't know. Math is hard. Let me, let me see. Because if he was in his 30s and 40s when he was with her and then had a 25-year killing spree. He'd be in his 60s. He would have been mid-20s. So all that stuff with that mountain man was just super fast? He was with him for probably a few years. Yeah. So he was 22 in Jersey, for like a, and he was there for like a year or so in the Army. And then he went so with he, that guy. So he was in, he served during the, Ameri- the Mexican-American War in 1846, and he was 22 years old at that time. Yeah. She died a year later, so he would have been 23. So, yeah, he would have been in his mid-40s after his late 40s after hunting them down for 25 years. I feel like there was like a, I'm picturing him learning from Old Hatcher as like a montage. Yeah. That's how fast it was. Like It must have been. It's a montage. (laughs) How you hunt, it's a montage. (laughs) Time was a construct then. (laughs) Nothing more, nothing less. Some historians believe that this move was intentional on the part of the Crow, as tensions between the neighboring tribes were on the rise. Civil war was on the horizon, and many tribes were forming alliances in an effort to protect themselves during the coming conflict. Many feel that the Crow forgave John as a way to spare them from another enemy. Mm, Okay. There are some stories that say he refused to reconcile with the crow and even went so far as to poison batches of biscuits with strychnine before leaving them for the crow people to eat. Okay, I learned a fun fact about strychnine that I didn't know. So apparently strychnine affects your cells in such a way that like your lesser muscles contract and then your major muscles contract. So you like die in this really like intense fetal position. Like your whole body just like caves in on itself and you have like a, essentially like a seizure where like all your muscles speed up before you die. Don't like it. No. So that would have been a really awful death. Others say he gave blankets tainted with smallpox to them. Wow. Biochemical warfare. He's jack of all trades, isn't he? Either way, both options are awful and many believe they are 100% false. Yeah. I mean... That would take a lot of thought, and he'd have yeah. to be good at making biscuits. So. <laughs> Just baking while out in the wild. <laughs> right. 
Where are you going to get flour when you're just like wandering around hunting down well, your sure enemies? I'm sure you had lots of lard, but <laughs> other than that. And where are you just going to randomly stumble upon smallpox? I mean, right. let's be real. And not be affected by it, too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In 1864, at the age of 40, John joined the ranks of Company H, 2nd Colorado Cavalry of the Union Army in St. Louis as a private sharpshooter and scout. Yeah, he'd be a good sharpshooter. Yep. He served in Missouri and was wounded on October 28, 1864, at the Second Battle of Newtonia. After being honorably discharged in 1865, he moved back to Montana and settled in Colson, where he worked as a wagon master and scout to assist settlers moving into the hostile First Nation territory. John himself wrote a letter to the editor of a Montana newsletter in 1868 regarding his nickname of Liver Eating Johnson. He explained that he came by it through a misunderstanding. In the letter, he explained that after a battle with the Sioux, who lived in the northern Great Plains of the Dakotas, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, he cut out a young warrior's liver and offered the first bite to one of his friends. The friend refused and told everyone that he'd seen John eating it. John stated that he hadn't eaten any, but that he had rubbed it over his mouth to make it seem like he'd eaten some. Why? Because he's just a little trickster, just a little scamp. Who doesn't love a little fun cannibalism humor? Horrifying. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to eat it, but I'm going to rub this organ on my mouth. (laughs) Get some good old liver juice. I hear it's good for your chapped lips. Apparently, John took great pleasure in the reactions his hellish nickname elicited in people, and he would embellish the stories to increase his notoriety. Oh, I'm sure. In fact, John was actually great friends with the Crow people and, quote, the only white man they knew who would eat raw deer liver with them, end quote. His nickname of liver eater was adopted as a name of respect that his friends of the Crow Nation had bestowed upon him. Oh, okay. So this whole, like... I annihilated all of the Crow Warriors was probably not true. I mean, I'm sure he did. I don't think to the extent that it is listed. Throughout the rest of his life, John would also work as a tour guide, sailor, and builder. In the 1870s, he worked as a whiskey trader and fur trapper before serving as a civilian army scout at the age of 53 under General Nelson A. Miles as his chief of scouts during the Indian Wars of 1877 and 1878. During his service, John participated in more raiding parties than any other First Nation fighter. I'm not surprised. John was appointed the deputy sheriff of Colson, which is modern day Billings, Montana, in the early 1880s. And after a few years, he decided to turn his infamy as a fearsome frontiersman into cash by starting his own Wild West show, which were very popular at the time. Oh, I bet. John partnered with Martha Jane Canary, or Calamity Jane, as she was best known, Mm -hmm. as well as several of his Crow compatriots before regaling townspeople across the Midwest with tales of his battles fighting against the whole Sioux Nation, quote unquote. Yep, the whole, all of them. Every single one of them. Every single one of them, even babies. Even the baby suit, they gave him the most trouble. He just punched those babies in the face. Those damn babies. Smeared their mouths with liver. (laughs) You eat this. It's good for your skin. The show failed after less than two years, and many of the showmen had to sell their horses just to get back home. Oh, (laughs) what would they do? How would they get back? Probably get like a train ticket or something. Oh. 
Because I'm sure it was cheaper to sell the horse than to try to like feed the horse mm-hmm. as they're riding at home. Right. After returning to Montana in the early 1890s, John became the town marshal of Red Lodge, Montana, and held the post for about a decade. John prided himself on being able to be self-sufficient, but with his failing health and dwindling finances and a great deal of reluctance on his part, he consented to move into the National Soldier's Home at Santa Monica, California. He became what he termed as an inmate in December of 1899 at the age of 75. He died there on January 21st, 1900 from peritonitis. Is that how you say it? Peritonitis, which is an inflammation of the tissues that line the inner wall of the abdomen. Not the liver. (laughs) Not the liver. He was buried the next day on January 22nd at the Sawtill National Cemetery in modern day Los Angeles. A film based loosely on his life was produced in 1972. And two years later, John was reburied on June 8th, 1974 in Wyoming. The relocation of his body was the result of a six-month campaign by a group of 25 seventh graders who who petitioned to have him moved from Los Angeles to Cody, Wyoming. The student's teacher had become fascinated with the story of John Johnson after reading about his life in the book, quote, Crow Killer, The Saga of Liver-Eating Johnson by Raymond Thorpe and Robert Bunker. Did they read it to the seventh graders? I don't know, but the teacher named Tri Robinson shared the story of John with his students who were upset to learn that the Wild West legend was buried near the San Diego freeway instead of where he wished to be buried in the northern Rockies near where he'd spent the majority of his life. Yeah. John Garrison Johnson is still interred in Section 5, Row F, Grade 8 at the Old Town Cemetery in Cody, Wyoming. One of his pallbearers at his reinterment was none other than Robert Redford, who played him in the 1972 movie, Jeremiah wow, Johnson. Wow, that's crazy. And that is the interesting life of John Johnson. Yeah. So thank you, Kara, for, yeah. for picking him. It's always fun to do Wild West stories just because, you know, they're going to be kind of like, wow, bananas. they're going to be kind of crazy. They're always different, too. You yeah, know? none of them are the same. Not even close. So... But I just found it interesting because, you know, everyone painted him as this cannibal when chances are he didn't eat the livers at all. It was no. just him symbolically taking it out. But I mean, who knows? Maybe he did. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just think it's crazy that he served in any sort of military capacity as long as he did. Yeah. Three different times. Four different times. Yeah. And like kept rejoining when he was in his 50s. That. Mm hmm. A lot of effort. Yeah, that's a lot of dedication to the cause. In a world, there was one podcast that made all others look like silly little part-time, half-baked ideas that should have been thrown in the trash can after being written down. That's a super long-winded way of saying that Drunk Theory Podcast is the best-kept secret out there right now. There are a bunch of idiots talking about conspiracy theories, and when these four come together, they have the capability to solve just about any question coming their way. But keep in mind, they're idiots, so sometimes they won't have the answer. But we guarantee you'll end up laughing so hard you cry or urinate in your pants. I don't make the rules here. So let Matthew, Kara, Kelly, and Ryan give you everything you never know you needed and more. Only on Drunk Theory Podcast. Available on all major streaming platforms. More conspiracies coming soon. So as I mentioned at the top, this week's podcast plug is the Drunk Theory Podcast. 
hosts Ryan, Kara, Matthew, and Kelly get drunk on something each week as they discuss a variety of conspiracies from music to the royal family, history, presidents, and pretty much everything that has some sort of conspiracy tied to it. They're going to talk about it. Nice. So this show's got a little bit of something for everyone. Yeah. And if you like to laugh and listen to a bunch of random conspiracies with or without a few slurred speeches. (laughs) Hiccups. A few hiccups here and there. Then I highly recommend you check out this hilarious show. We're actually good friends with Kelly on Twitter. So hey, girl. And special thank you again to Kara for supporting us. You guys are hilarious and amazing. Yeah, thank you very much. So we will have a link to their show in the show notes. And this week's listener question comes from our friend Chris from the Dial a Crime podcast. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know, you have a sandwich. You cut the sandwich in half. Do you now have one sandwich or two sandwiches? One. Yeah, you have one sandwich. You have two slices of one sandwich. Yes, I concur. Mm-hmm. There's your answer, Chris. <laughs> Thanks. That was simple. So what's something good you'd like to share this week? Something good. So uh, we've supported them before. Uh, Can Do Canines is a service dog program in New Hope, Minnesota. And it's where I got my beautiful golden retriever, Willie. And as kind of a way for me to help them since, you know, I can't really donate myself. I mean, I was somebody who was gifted a dog because I don't have twenty thousand dollars to train one. As a way of kind of returning the favor, I donate scent samples for diabetic alert dogs. So if I ever get low, I can breathe <laughs> into gauze and like drool on gauze, and that creates the smell to train other diabetic alert dogs. So I'll do that. And then another way is I'm an ambassador. And so recently they had asked me to be there while they talked to a big donor and I got to sit in on the conversation and I told my story and she asked some pretty interesting questions like, what's it like having him and how does he help you every day? And what does, you know, time off, off the clock look like for him? And it went really, really well. And so I hope in September when they make their decision that they choose to donate to Can Do Canines. But yeah, that was just really nice. Anytime I can help them is always just kind of a bright spot in my day. It's literally the easiest thing I can do. I just I just get to talk about my dog for a half hour. So yeah. like <laughs> I'm down because he's amazing. So yeah, that was my nice thing this week. What about you? Nice. Oh, I took the girls for a walk with Kona this week. So obviously it's summer vacation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, both my husband and I are still working remotely, although you're starting to do like a hybrid where you both go back. Well, I haven't really been going into the office per se. I mean, I've had to at least one day a week these past couple of weeks. and I'll have to again on the day this episode comes out, which I find it hilarious that I just really don't like going into the office, even though I'm away from my kids. and I know I can like focus more on like my job. Mm-hmm. I just don't like going in the office. I like being able to be at home and do my yeah. work. It's a different kind of interruption. You can almost control home interruptions better mm-hmm. than work interruptions. You can't really yeah. yell at your boss and tell her to go to her room. <laughs> go to your room. Stop watching watch TV. A movie. Stop watching TV. Get off your device. Go play with Legos or something. Go outside. So we took Kona. We went for a walk to our local coffee shop and we all got smoothies 
and just kind of walked around. It was a nice day, so it was kind of nice to get out of the house, get them out of the house, go for a nice walk. It was minimal squabbling, which is always a bonus. Absolutely. And I did take pictures of everybody, but it's funny how unphotogenic Kona is. She's like the biggest derp whenever the camera comes out. She just like... She's just so excited. You can tell how happy she is that attention is being given. She's just a dork. Because she just bathes in attention when she gets it. It's so cute. She's just so grateful. Yeah. She's just like, love me. Love me so much. I love you. I love it. (laughs) So that was my something good. Just being able to take the girls out for like a little girl's foray. Getting some delicious smoothies from the local coffee shop. Supporting a small business. Doing all the things. And just getting some natural vitamin D along the way. Yeah. So. Sounds like a pretty good thing to me. Yeah. Might try to make it a, a weekly thing. Just go once a week and as a special treat when weather permitting. Yeah. So, shall we? We shall. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod and on Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where we have new episodes every week. We also have a P.O. Box, which has been very rony lately. You should you should send something to the P.O. Box. That <laughs> to Yield Crime Podcast at P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota, 55092. If you save up, you can buy us a trampoline for our birthdays in August. <gasps> there we go. And then you can just have really awful audio podcasts from now on while one of us is bouncing. It's just a a bunch of heavy breathing. Like, what? And the sound of springs. Audio falling tight. Right. You can also email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. You can submit questions that you'd like to ask us. Give us a, tell us a story, send us gifts, whatever you fancy. Or if yeah. you have a story suggestion, feel free to send those in as well. Absolutely. We've gotten some good ones. We have. If you'd like to be able to support us, can't do so financially, you could leave us a five-star rating and review, which is a great way to support the show. And this one comes from our friend Prash from the Prash's Murder Map podcast. Nice. And he says, lively mix of crime and history. Five stars. Sisters Lindsay and Madison are amazing hosts and present an interesting blend of crime and history, injecting some funny thoughts along the way to keep it entertaining. I love how they also cover little known crimes of antiquity, some of which I had not heard of before. Keep up the great work, ladies. Thank you. And a smiley face. Yep. Thank you, Prash. If you are able to support us financially and would like to do so, you can do it on Buy Me a Coffee for a one-time donation. Or if you'd like to become a monthly donor, you can do so on Patreon for as low as a dollar a month to get ad-free early access to our episodes, which is always fun. Mm -hmm. And you can also support us by purchasing some of our merch on our Public store. As we've said this whole month, all proceeds will be donated to Outright Action International, who mm-hmm. fight for the human rights of the LGBTIQ people everywhere around the world. Awesome. You can also donate to them directly on our Instagram mm-hmm. and on their website, which we link to in the show notes. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Maddie. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. <laughs>